0: Well, good morning. As we've been thinking about uh, the past couple of weeks, uh, this idea of uh, life together and what it means to do uh, life with and for one another, um been thinking about the fact uh, this past fall we uh, spent our time thinking about God moments and the idea that God wants to intersect uh, your life and God has intersected your life and how we remember yesterday determines how we'll live tomorrow. Um, but inside of that, um, I got to thinking this week that when you kind of survey the landscape of how people grow inside of their faith or uh, the defining moments inside of their faith, you would expect that some of the foundational moments people have are those salvation moments, that when you discover God or rediscover God or God makes um, himself known in, inside of your life, that is a uh, one of the main ways that people would uh, talk about God's activity inside of their life. When God begins to reorient uh, how you see the world, your worldview, the way in which you view reality, when God begins to reconstruct your your character those that 's kind of the next ring out of what God begins to do inside of your life, but do you know the majority of stories, testimonies, moments where God breaks through now, not the most important I, again, I think the foundational is what what God does inside of your life directly in a moment of salvation or You know, uh, moving you inside of some level of growth. But when you think of the number of, you know, the majority of God moments people talk about is after salvation, the way that God makes himself known through adversity, when the bottom drops out of life, when something either happens to me or there's something that I've done, or even just the events of the world that we live in, when there's an opportunity to engage my gifts inside the body of Christ, when We do life together in relationship, even though the foundational, you know, moments and events inside of our Christian life are between me and God, the majority, numerically, the defining moments in a person's life are when we begin to work that out inside of relationships. So life together is more than just how do we be nice to one another in a divided political world, even though that's important. Life together is more than just how do we figure out how to do church in the middle of a pandemic, although that's important. But when we, when we what's it look like to be the church when everything we think about church looks different or is different or will be different for some time? It's, it's about my faith can continue to grow and develop and look more like, my life can look more like Jesus even when life is not optimal or even if you were to read some of the saints down through the history, my life can look more like Jesus, especially in the context of when life doesn't look like I would ever plan it or write the picture. So uh, we've kind of go, gone from general to specific. Uh, we talked about being members of one another. We talked about honoring and being devoted to one another. Last week we talked about encouragement. Uh, today um, we get extremely practical and uh, probably the most specific of the, the six weeks and what it means to forgive one another forgive one another. It's one of the foundational uh, one another phrases inside of the New Testament. And so I want to tell you a story, and you're going to have actually the opportunity to hear this story in greater detail. Uh, If you want to remain after the service, we have about an eight minute video um, that uh, if you're online, there'll be a link uh, that you can go to, or if you're here in the room, we're we're going to play it. Um, If you don't want to, that's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's not me in the video, but uh, the video is... Uh, about a song, but also about a lady's story. The lady is Renee. Uh, Renee Napier was her name. It's possible that you've heard this story before. Uh, Renee had four kids. Uh, Two of them were were twins. And Megan, one of the twins, was on her way home uh, one night with a friend when a drunk driver struck their vehicle, killing both Megan and her friend. As you can imagine, or some of you have lived this, or you've been close to people who have lived this, uh, you know, the horror, the, the shock, the pain, the sadness, the grief, the anger, all the different emotions that begin to happen inside of Renee's life in the ensuing days and weeks and months and years. The driver was, was named Eric. Eric was 24. Um, he was not necessarily a bad kid. He was a kid who made a series of bad decisions and on this particular night took the lives of these two young women. Renee said she was in the darkest place inside of her life, and even that darkness continued to expand even as the the, the process of justice took place, and Eric was sentenced to 22 years in prison for, um, I believe it was vehicular manslaughter was probably what, what took place. She said even after the conviction, she felt like she was the one in prison uh, because the hatred and the resentment and the bitterness uh, of what began to take place inside of her life. I began to think about the fact that um, a couple of things are true, that life is oftentimes a series of ungrieved losses. Now certainly in Renee's case there was grief, but by ungrieved losses it means there are things that are, that happen either to us or there are things that, that take place inside of our life that we never really work through or work past and they continue just to remain there. Life is a series of ungrieved losses and unresolved hurt. And so sometimes there are events that happen that we never process. Sometimes there are are relationships that maybe those relationships continue. Maybe they're in the past. Maybe the person's died. Maybe the person still lives inside of your home. uh, But we never work through and resolve those hurts. I shared with you this imagery before, but David Siemens in the book Healing for Damaged Emotions uh, talked about these uh, oughts, oughts and and. You know, debts, just this, this idea that through life it's almost like a ledger, a scorecard, if you will. And David Seaman says that there's two different ones. The, the one are the things that we do. They're the regrets. They're the things that we wish that we could take back. They're the places where we feel guilty for the mistakes that we've done or, or the opportunities that we've let slip. And it's almost as though when you pick up a rock, you would write on an IOU. And the IOU means, I wish I could have done, I wish I would have done I wish this didn't happen And it's almost like, you know, if I could take and undo that, I would. But for now, I just pick up the rock and I put it in the sack that's flung over my shoulder, the IOUs. These are usually marked by guilt, by shame, by regret. The second are, you know, the ones that are more marked by anger or bitterness or resentment. And that is that you did something for me, and so the rock that I pick up is you owe me. And so these you me rocks and these IOU rocks, we just pick up and we put in the sack that's on our shoulder. And you know that if you go through life and the years turn into decades, the sack that's on the shoulder gets heavy. Because what we're not good at, whether Christians or non-Christians, we should be better at it, you know, with, with the hope of Jesus. But what none of us are really good at is taking a rock out. We only pick them up and we only add them. And David Seaman says that as we carry around these oughts and these debts, life just gets heavy and burdened down and we have unresolved hurts and ungrieved losses inside of our lives. Forgiveness is the act of taking the rocks out. Not fixing the situations not guaranteeing that I'll never be hurt again, not doing any of that, but just dealing with the rocks that we're carrying around. Because you know this and I know this, the person you owe or the person who owes you may not have any concern or maybe even knowledge of whatsoever. They are not carrying any rocks necessarily. You're the one carrying the rock. I want to take you into a familiar passage of Scripture. Inside of Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. These are parables, these are made-up stories that are designed to illustrate a point or a main message. And so he talks about a a sheep that's lost, actually one of a hundred sheep who wanders off. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes and gets the one. And when he finds the one and he puts it over his shoulder and he brings it back, there is much rejoicing because something that was valuable was lost. It warranted an all-out search. It was found and then there was rejoicing. The second story is of a woman who loses a coin. And this coin is not just like the coins that you and I misplace underneath the seat of our car. That doesn't matter much. This coin represents a substantial portion of her life savings. And so she turns the house upside down, and she searches, and she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls up all of her friends and says, I've found it. It's no longer lost. And there was rejoicing because something that was valuable was lost, and it warranted an all-out search. And when it was found, there was rejoicing, and there was restoration. And then Jesus comes to the third story, and the third story is longer. And we know it as the the parable of the prodigal son. And so in this case, there are two sons. So you go from a 100 sheep to a handful of coins to now two sons, and one of the sons leaves and says, I want to do life on my own. And he takes his share of the inheritance, and he goes and he spends it doing whatever he wants to do and wherever he wants to go to the point where he has nothing except regret and remorse. And he says, even if I could just go back home and work for my father, it would be better than this existence that I'm currently living in. So he musters up the courage and he goes back home and only to find that the father has been waiting for him and the father comes out and he wraps him up in a big bear hug and he puts a robe on him and he puts a ring on his finger and he calls all the neighborhood and they have a party because the lost son has been found. And so in each of these cases, there is something of great value that's been lost and it warrants an all-out search, and when it's finally found, there is rejoicing, there is restoration. But you know, and I know, if you've been in church and you've heard the story, that that's not the end of Jesus' third story. But it continues on inside of Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse number 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friend. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you know what's interesting? That if Jesus is telling a story, and really a series of stories to illustrate a point, these stories line up when you have a lost sheep and a lost coin, and a lost son. Right up, on, up until the point of where we started reading out loud. Because it would make sense that, you know, the sheep was found and returned, and there's no description about how the other sheep felt about it. There's a coin that's lost and then it's found, and there's no description about how the other coins felt about the other coin, which is even silly to think about. But the tension of the story... Now again, the emotional plot of the story of where it moves through is when the son comes home and the father wraps him up, and that's the feel-good moment. But that would not be the end of the movie. That's not the tension point. In fact, Jesus leaves the story open-ended. And you can imagine if we're sitting in a circle and Jesus is there and he's telling us the story and you can picture it in your mind. You would have questions. As awesome and as, you know, just you could picture it, maybe it brings a tear to your, your eyes, the father wrapping up the son and throwing a big party. Where the story moves you to is to ask the question, well, what happened between the two sons? Did they make up? Did the younger son say, stay home or did he have to leave? Did the older son leave? Was there a friction between them? You know, what happened? The tension of the story is left open-ended. And I think Jesus wants to communicate inside of this that, Lost things, lost people matter to God. But also beyond that, that the work of redemption that God does between himself and a person is also the same work of redemption and restoration and reconciliation that he wants us to do with one another. And so elsewhere, you know, forgive us, the Lord forgave you, or, you know, those kind of verses seem to pop up. That the model of how we live in relationship with one another is patterned off of the relationship how God lives with us. And so before I get into the practicalities, then it almost should say it kind of seems silly then, the things that we hold grudges about, when all that God has done for us. But I get ahead of myself, myself just a little bit. Inside of the tension of the story is the challenge for the audience. You see, there is a God who loves you and wants to reconcile you to himself, but then that makes all the difference in the world then with how we live from there. So a couple of verses for you of these one another statements. In Ephesians chapter 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. Colossians chapter three, bear with each other. This means that it's not easy. It's not automatic. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive us, the Lord forgave you. These are the verses, and there are a few other ones that, you know, that not only this idea of forgiveness, but letting go or forbearing or, you know, working through, and some of the language of the New Testament talks about that we have to be people who make things right inside of relationships. Now, I think of that in three main areas. The first, like I just said, is between us us and God. And that is the greatest act of forgiveness and restoration that could ever take place. It's the ultimate centerpiece, life-changing moment inside of a person's life when God sets them free. And the language even of what it means to belong to Jesus is that your sins have been forgiven. What stood between you and God has now been erased and moved to the side, and there's intimacy and there's fellowship because of that. The second way I think we talk about forgiveness is, and for lack of a better or more creative description, I'll just say the big thing. We talk about, about forgiveness in terms of the big things. Renee's story. I have a daughter who's been killed by a drunk driver. That is a big thing. That is something that, you know, ripples throughout life that I know that if I don't deal with it in some way, it could take me down as a person. We know when the big things come up, even though it's hard, even though it's complex, even though we don't know how to do it or where to start, we know that we need to deal with this because otherwise it's going to be chaotic inside of my life. The big things, the heavy things, the things that we know spill over into other areas of our lives. When I do premarital counseling, we use a test called prepare and enrich. And prepare and enrich looks at The one hand, you know, I call skill levels. And so how good is a couple at, you know, communicating or working through conflict or handling their finances or, you know, how do they feel about one another's friends and one another's family and and those kind of, like, skill areas. But then it also looks at some personal dynamics, some personality, and then actually aspects of abuse and things inside of their family background. And the way I describe it to them is, listen, I I don't want to go, you know, Jump super deep and try to solve things that we can't solve in, you know, three or four sessions together. But I want you to know as a couple, and I kind of use an old preacher story, and that is, you know, a guy goes to the doctor and he says, doctor, I don't know what's wrong with me because every time, you know, my my head hurts and my arm hurts and my leg hurts, what's the matter with me? And he says, you have a broken finger. And the reality is how many times inside of marriage or inside of relationships, Do we act like we have a problem with our leg or our arm or our head when the reality is there is a broken finger that is affecting every other aspect of what we feel and how we relate to one another? And so I say to them, the reason we're going to talk about some of this is to uncover or at least look into aspects of your personality, your background, your past, your family, any abuse situations, because otherwise... It could take down your marriage, not because you have a marriage problem, but because you have a problem in your past that you're carrying into your present. The big things. But I think where I want to take most of our time this morning, the remainder of our time this morning, is, again, for lack of a more creative term, the little things, The day-to-day. The moment-to-moment. Because sometimes we don't talk about forgiveness a whole lot because we think, if I haven't been wronged, you know, and I have this big story as a part of my past, then I'm good. I mean, after all, I know that there's people inside of my life that I don't really get along with, and they probably don't get along with me, or there's people that I'm irked at, or there's somebody that when they walk in the room, I roll my eyes, but, you know, that's just a natural part of life. As long as I'm not, you know, plotting to take them down, um, or, you know, as long as I can function inside of my life, then everything else is good. And I think we need to be intentional with the little things, the day to day aspects of forgiveness inside of our relationships for a couple of reasons. First, it tends to be these are the people who are in your life regularly that you want to have strong relationships with. And we need to learn to, the phrase I use sometimes is keep short accounts. We need to keep short accounts with the people who are in close relationship with us. Not always, you know, the tally sheet or the rocks you know, in in the sack on the shoulder. But we want to keep short accounts and to be right with the people who are closest with us. A second reason, though, I think, is when we begin to do that well in the present tense, maybe it eliminates the possibility of having more big things later to deal with. And maybe even it gives us a little bit of the courage and the confidence and some of the muscles that have been shaped within us that we can finally unlock that door that is barred shut and has been for 20 years, that we don't feel like opening now. But, you know, if I can begin to get along with my spouse better or my kids better or my boss better and keep short accounts inside of my relationships with people in my small group or my neighborhood, maybe it will give me enough confidence and begin to work those muscles of right relationships that maybe not now, but in a year or two years or five years, we can open that door and deal with the big things. I think this is big inside of our life and what it means to do the one another's well. How we be the church together. How we have right relationships that not only enrich our lives, but show a picture of who Jesus is to an unbelieving world. Because again, as much as we've overstated a word like, you know, these are unprecedented times, let me also state the obvious, we live in a polarized world. We're most happy when we're mad at something. And the things that are trying to market to you during the commercials on TV or the the ads that pop up, the things that try to market towards you, and then uh, even the news that we watch is all an attempt to try to tell us who's to blame for what we feel is wrong in the world or inside of our lives. And so not only is our world polarized, but you're constantly being bombarded with messages of what's wrong and who's to blame for it. And there is no shortage of opinions and answers and conclusions and dogmatic statements that are out there. And so in comparison and anger and isolation and bitterness and jealousy and all these different things and online arguments and unfriending and being unfriended and and all these different things that are taking place as we shout louder and louder, not making our relationships any better. And I don't think it's providing greater ground for kingdom work to take place either. You see, I believe one of the, the greatest indicators of your maturity in Christ is your ability to live in right relationship with other people. And sometimes we think because living as a Christian is countercultural, you know that there are going to be decisions that I make that aren't going to be popular and it's not going to be the way of the world. And so the, the deeper I go in Christ, the more that should mean that, I, that I'm swimming upstream We take that to mean that the deeper I am in Christ, the more people I offend, and the less friends I actually have inside of life because, after all, I'm standing strong for Jesus. And we have to be careful because sometimes we baptize in the church, we spiritualize and say that if somebody's mad at me, I must be doing something right. And there's partial truth in that, right? Like when you stand for something, it's not always going to be popular. We're not in a popularity contest. But when I think about Jesus, The more he stood for truth, the more drawn people were to him. they might have said, you know what, we're not necessarily convinced he's the Messiah. We don't know if we believe everything that he believes. We think he's a little bit extreme in some of the things that he says, but we know that when we're around him, life is better. And all the way up until the point of his last night, just before the, the arrest and the betrayal and the last hours of his life, wherever Jesus was, there was a crowd of people, and they wanted to be close to him, and they wanted to be near him. And I wonder if that's a little bit that even as we stand strong, there could be something attractional, not people-pleasing, not compromising, but there could be something attractional about the people of God because of how we relate to one another. A couple other verses uh, before we break this down a little bit. Hebrews chapter 12. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Notice there's a connection here between an effort to live in peace with everyone and holiness. Where sometimes, again, we we think the deeper I go in Christ, the more I don't have to do that. But these two things go together inside of our lives. And Romans chapter 12, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you. In other words, do everything inside of your power to live at peace with the people around you. You see, I think our world is hungry for not just people who can just give in or acquiesce or say it doesn't matter, but people who can pursue unity at a such point that even if we disagree, I can value you enough to remain in relationship and to prioritize the relationship. I think it's important for us to get this right. So forgiveness is not an academic exercise. It's not just reserved for the big things in life. But I think it gets very granular. It gets very practical inside of our lives. So I want to share with you just a couple of places to start. And some of you are masters at this. And some of us are beginners and we don't know where to start. But I just want to give you a couple of handles uh, today as we think about this. The first is just to think of, an area, a person, a situation, a group, a time period in your life, whatever, think inside of your past and your present of an area of a person with whom you might be frustrated, angry, bitter, resentful. Just begin to, to think about where might this be gaining a foothold inside of my life. And maybe it's something big and huge, and if so, you know, I want to help you and there's other people that want to help you work through that, but you may have to dig a little bit and say, okay, I get along with most people, I don't have many enemies, but where have I allowed frustration and anger and bitterness to creep in? I think it's important to identify it, not just to speak in generalities, not just to say, I try to be a good person, or I try to to be okay with everybody, or I try to work through things, but to be specific. Just because it's not the big stuff doesn't mean it doesn't have to be dealt with so I did this this week. Um, I think that I do this fairly well, right? I mean, I think I'm pretty easygoing. You know, I've tried to prioritize relationships inside of my life. I I think, and I still think that I do this fairly well, but I said, if I'm going to ask you all to do this, I'm going to do it. So I took five minutes sitting by myself with a blank sheet of paper, and I wrote down five names. And those names are, are you ready? No, I'm just kidding. That's I actually wrote down initials because I'm like, somebody comes down here and sees this list, and it's like my own little burn book or, you know, whatever. But um, those five names, they probably don't even require follow-up conversations. A couple of them are people that just kind of rub me the wrong way, and I find that when they begin to speak, I roll my eyes, you know, whether, you know, people can see it or not. Like, it, there are just things where maybe there's a lack of trust inside of situations, or in the past, somebody, you know, might have burned me or something. and And the five that I wrote down, they are not bad people. These are not broken relationships. But I had to be honest with myself that where are there places where this stuff begins to creep in? Because if we want to keep short accounts, and if I don't want to just walk through life just throwing another rock over my shoulder, I think we have to get practical enough to identify it. That maturity in Christ should make us better at life, not just more bitter at life. And I love when I meet saints of the church and people in their 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s who they are more joyful now probably than they were when they were 40 or 50. And you know and I know that I meet some other people that it's gone the opposite, that their world has shrunk, that there's a list of the people who have wronged them, or the bridges that have been burnt, and they're just trying to make it to the end. I want to be on the former side and not the latter side of that. All right, second, after identifying, acknowledge your feelings about what it has done to you. I don't want to generalize, but for all the males in the room, you know, we can identify, we're good at that. You know, I can write the list, write down the five names, the, you know, the five initials, but um, we don't often want to acknowledge what it did to us. Maybe by acknowledging it, you give it power, you give it validity. Maybe by acknowledging it, you're forced to relive things inside of your life that you would rather not relive. But I think it's an important step is not just to identify specific situations or groups or people or time periods, but to not just identify it, but to think through what it either has done or maybe even worse yet is continuing to do inside of my life. Because you see, we stop trusting, we stop believing. There are things where we don't even approach now because I had a bad experience 20 years ago and so I'm never going to go back to that store or I'm never going to do this. And life becomes constricted because we've allowed it to become constricted. Now, do you know when we do this, when we begin to acknowledge what's taking place, it doesn't mean it just lets the other person off the hook and that everything is all better. In fact, let me just give you permission. If there's a guy who stole money from you, Working through this and pursuing forgiveness doesn't mean you let him hold your wallet next summer when you go swimming. You can learn a lesson. Maybe the relationship is not even restored. But what it means is I am not any longer going to carry the rock over my shoulder or the series of rocks over my shoulder that he doesn't even think about it anymore, but I continue to harbor these feelings that are only hurting me. All right, and then number three, this is so easy to write. What's so hard to do is cancel the debt. Get rid of the rock, Stop carrying around the tally sheet. Let it go. That is hard with big things. I think it's even hard with the small things. Because for the relationships that are closest to you, it's so easy during the course of the day to keep a little tally sheet. Can't believe she said that. Can't believe he did this. And in your mind, it's almost like you're saying, she owes me one, he owes me one. What would it look like to live in such a way to keep short accounts? Not just simply with your enemies or with your past or the things that have wronged you, but even in your closest relationships inside the church, outside the church, in your family, to keep a blank slate and a clean slate. You're not rewarding the offender. You're not saying that what took place was okay. You're choosing to move forward and to release it, if nothing else, for the sake of your betterment. To keep short accounts. I believe this extends to all relationships inside of our lives, to all areas of relationship. What would our marriages look like if, We prioritize right relationship over being right. What would our relationships with our kids or our grandkids or our families look like if we took the first step and apologized before waiting for the other person to do it? Whether you're a boss or an employee, what would it look like to acknowledge your mistakes instead of trying to cover it over and protect your image and look out for yourself? What if there was a little bit more salt, a little bit more light, a little bit more grace inside of our church relationships and our small groups and the ways in which we might disagree, and instead of writing somebody off, we actually move towards the messiness of life? What if we actually did this, that it wasn't just something that we held out there like I want to you know, be somebody who forgives, or I'm not going to you know, hold this massive grudge, but the little things, oh, they're just part of the friction of life, and I'm going to be okay with that. What if we actually did this? How attractive would the body of Christ look to a polarized world if we live in such a way to prioritize relationships and keeping short accounts? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells a group that were there listening that if, if you don't forgive your brother, how can God forgive you? And I don't think his point there is to say that unless all of your relationships are pristine and neat and there's forgiveness and everything is buttoned up, nice and neat, then you're not going to get into heaven. I think what he means is that if God really comes to take up residence inside of your life, and if Jesus really becomes the centerpiece inside of your heart, then it should find its way out into the most messy, the most difficult, the most painful areas inside of our past and our present. That a relationship with Jesus Christ to experience his forgiveness extends out to every relationship inside of my life. That a God who so willingly and graciously wipes the slate clean for you wants you to be somebody who regularly and willingly and graciously wipes the slate clean for the people around you. So let's do this. Begin inside and begin by asking yourself some questions. I talked with a guy after the first service and he said, how do I do this? I don't feel like there's any big things. And I said, maybe just walk down through, maybe start with the past week, maybe start with the most important relationships. Like, however, but just start and take inventory and say, is there anything that I'm holding on to that's making me bitter instead of better. And Just to start, net, ask the questions. Maybe it involves a conversation or a letter or there's some action step to make it right. Or maybe it just begins between you and Jesus about this particular situation. But I think we want it to become a pattern inside of our lives that we live as people who li- live and keep short accounts. And we want to be people who aren't just carrying around a bag full of rocks with IOUs and UOMEs written on them. So back to Renee's story as as we wrap this up. Um, if you've heard the name Matthew West, Matthew West is a Christian artist. A lot of times, what he'll do in his songwriting is to write songs based off of the stories of other people. And so Renee sent her story into Matthew West. It became like not surprisingly, uh, the inspiration behind a song that he wrote called Forgiveness. And I want to read the lyrics for you. And a little bit later, if you're watching online, there's going to be a link that you can go to YouTube and to, to view a video. If you're here and you have an extra eight minutes after the benediction, we're going to actually play a little bit of Renee's story and Matthew West's song. But for now, let me just read some of these, because I think these phrases provide handles for us both for the big things and for the small things. Here's what Matthew S. says, It's the hardest thing to give away, and the last thing on your mind today. It always goes to those who don't deserve. It's the opposite of how we feel when the pain that they caused is just too real. It takes everything you have to say the word forgiveness. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say that you have a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying, set it free. Forgiveness. It'll clear the bitterness away and even set a prisoner free. There's no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. The prisoner that it really sets free is you. I don't know what this looks like for you, or whether it's a new concept or an old concept, whether you do this fairly well, or whether you don't know where to begin because your life and your past means that you have a lot of work to do, but I think as Jesus comes in to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, an extension of that means he wants that to work itself out inside of the relationships, inside of our lives as well. Let's start. Let's just... Begin to do it and build it as a as a muscle again inside of our lives of how we relate to one another to pursue forgiveness and what it means to keep to work account. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you today for your forgiveness of me. Forgiveness that I didn't earn or deserve or even fully understand the weight of. But that has literally transformed my identity and my life. And Lord God, my prayer simply for myself and for all of us is that the same pattern of forgiveness that you have shown to me, that I might live with that as the pattern of how I live towards the people around me. Lord, and I know across this room there's a, there's a variety of hurts, some that would even rival Renee's story. There's, There's pain, there's history, there's all sorts of things that are going on. And, Lord, would you help us just to know the first step to take? And would you meet us in the midst of taking that? We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.